You're listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that summarizes the top stories of the week. Coming up, we'll hear about improvements being made to the state's correctional facilities. Also, we learn about the issues around protecting endangered Appalachian salamanders. We'll also hear about barriers to dental care for West Virginians with disabilities. And join us for a look at a century-old glass-blowing operation in the state. I'm your host this week, Chris Schultz. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories. This past Tuesday marked the 18th anniversary of the Sago mine disaster. Curtis Tate has more. On January 2, 2006, 13 miners became trapped at the Sago mine near Buckhannon in Upshur County. A methane explosion trapped the men, and after two days of hope, only one emerged alive. Federal hearings took place later that year in Buckhannon. The mine's operator, International Coal Group, blamed a lightning strike for the methane explosion. The respirators the miners were provided to help them breathe were not working properly. At least nine coal miners were killed on the job nationwide in 2023, and Chris Williamson, Assistant Secretary for Mine Safety and Health, says that number can be improved. We're, we all want to get down to zero. Like one, one mining fatality, whether it's a coal miner or a metal non-metal miner, is one too many. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. Uninsured West Virginians can sign up for health insurance for free with trained counselors on January 9th. Emily Rice has more. The first Cover West Virginia Day is dedicated to raising awareness about how to get coverage and helping uninsured people in West Virginia find and enroll in health insurance. Jeremy Smith is the program director for the West Virginia Navigator Program, a free nonprofit program that offers enrollment assistance for the health insurance marketplace and is one of many organizations partnering for Cover West Virginia. We wanted to raise awareness about all these free services around the state that help people through it and that can help explain what they might qualify for and then help them with the application. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. For more information and a list of site locations, visit wvpublic.org. As of January 1st, West Virginia drivers can now go two years without a state vehicle inspection. But not everyone thinks that's a great idea. Randy Yowie has more. Lawmakers passed legislation last March that state inspection stickers are now good for two years, not one. Delegate Daniel Linville, a Republican from Cabell County, says only 12 states have vehicle inspections. He says data shows that inspections affecting highway safety are inconclusive. Uh, there, there's a lot of data which would say that, that uh, 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 you know, drivers in, in Kentucky, as, as a for instance, aren't any worse than drivers in West Virginia, and they don't require a safety inspection. Billy Keppel owns the Charleston area Marty's Tire and Auto Shops that do thousands of state inspections a year. He says many come in mistakenly thinking their car is in tip-top shape, and extending the inspection time period will put unsafe cars on the road. And they get dinged for safety things all the time. And I'm talking about brakes, shocks, lights being out, tires being bald, wire hanging out of tires, wheel bearings bad. Linville says vehicles have gotten more reliable over the years, and the inspection code has not been modified in decades. And we all know, you know, uh, you know, 100,000 miles a car used to used to be about to fall apart, and anymore you can get 200 plus thousand miles out of most vehicles. Um, and so uh, we're trying to keep up with the times. Couple says the main reason cars log thousands of miles is that they get regular safety inspections. They just keep driving it because it still drives straight. They get in it, they turn the key, and it goes. And most people just don't check their stuff. State inspections will now cost $19.78 every two years. 
For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. LG Electronics is planning to invest $700 million in projects for new business ventures in West Virginia. Brianna Heaney has more. Officials say the investment will create 275 highly skilled jobs in the state. West Virginia House of Delegates Speaker Roger Hanshaw said the investment will help diversify West Virginia's economy. We are proud today to say that energy is not just our past, it's also our future. But it's a 21st century future now. We're proud to say that we have become a 21st century economy, that we are no longer bound to any particular segment of industry as our economic future. The money is part of the LG Nova West Virginia Investment Fund that collaborates with startups and partners that have a positive impact on communities and the planet. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. A New Year's state budget surplus announcement comes with questions on state program funding. Randy Yowie has more. In his first weekly briefing of 2024, Governor Jim Justice announced that for the first half of fiscal year 2024, general revenue collections were $406 million above the estimate. He said December 2023 surplus collections were driven by a strong performance from personal income taxes and corporate net income tax. Justice said the surplus numbers are even more prominent when figuring in a 21.25% personal income tax cut. The largest in the state history tax cut that we delivered to all of our people, well in excess of $750 million. However, in the briefing, Justice was asked about finding a permanent funding source for volunteer fire departments and reducing jail and prison overcrowding. In both cases, he said there was surplus money to help, but gave no specific answers on how that help will come. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. The West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources has been split into three separate departments following the passage of a bill to split the agency passed last year. Emily Rice has more. Following an investigation and a class action lawsuit in 2023, the legislature decided to split up the Department of Health and Human Resources into three separate departments. These departments are the Department of Human Services, run by Secretary Cynthia Persily, the Department of Health, run by Secretary Sherry Young, and the Department of Health Facilities, run by Secretary Michael Caruso. Governor Jim Justice congratulated the new secretaries and expressed hope for positive change in the agencies. Now it is three different, three different uh, secretaries, three different you know uh, departments. With all that being said, we want to we want to welcome the change. We want to hope like crazy that this makes things better. Justice also noted how much money flows through the agency, more than twice the amount of the entire state's annual budget. So there's so much money that's flowing in and out of DHHR, it's unbelievable, and and therefore maybe this will just make us better. For fiscal year 2024, the DHHR presented a budget of more than $7.5 billion, with 75% of that being federal funding. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Legislative leaders met with the media Friday to look at some highlights of the 2024 general legislative session that begins next week. Randy Yowie has more. Supporting a 5% pay raise for teachers and all-state workers was a proposal that Senate President Craig Blair, a Republican from Berkeley County, Speaker of the House Roger Hanshaw, a Republican from Clay County, and House Minority Leader Sean Hornbuckle, a Democrat from Cabell County, all agreed upon. Blair again called for legislation that applies the death penalty to those convicted of distributing fentanyl. 
He also said to expect a Senate initiative to enhance classroom learning by better handling disruptive public school students. We're going to take that disruptive student out, move them to a classroom where there's cameras, where there's specialists, and allow those teachers to do their jobs without the disruption. Hanshaw told the media the House would make firefighter and EMS recruitment, retention, and pay a funding priority. He said expect legislation drafted to enhance cybersecurity for individuals and businesses. Liability protections and liability shields for businesses that do the responsible thing and implement proper cybersecurity protocols to safeguard their, their the customers and employees' data from nefarious actors around the world. Hornbuckle said House Democrats would stand up to extremism. He said public education should be put first, advocated a cost-of-living allowance raise for retirees, and supports legalizing adult use of cannabis. That is something that we can have in our toolkit to help pay for items. Blair was asked if legalizing adult use of cannabis was a way of quelling the fentanyl scourge. He said yes. We're going to see it sooner than later because that is a way to combat that issue. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. You're listening to West Virginia Week. And now, some of our top feature stories from the past week. A mystery dental shopper survey in West Virginia found long wait times for appointments, especially for those with intellectual or developmental disabilities and those on Medicaid. Emily Rice has the story. After conducting a similar analysis in other Rust Belt states, the Harmony Health Foundation conducted a mystery shopper analysis in West Virginia to better understand access to care barriers in the state. Their analysis of West Virginia's access to dental care revealed that more than 24% of dental practices in the state were not accepting new patients. The ones that were had an average wait time of more than 70 days for the first available appointment. Sean Boyne is the director of the Harmony Health Foundation. He worked with the West Virginia Oral Health Coalition on this report and found access to care problems in West Virginia. What the Mystery Shopper program does is allow us to have a better understanding of what individuals' patients actually go through and provides a more honest depiction of where access problems are occurring. In addition to 24% of practices not accepting new patients and long wait times for first appointments, data analysis found the average wait time for a second appointment to treat dental decay like a cavity was nearly 35 more days. The range was 1 to 145 days. The dentistry industry is facing a significant workforce shortage and access to care issues nationally. And these staffing issues are also becoming well documented. Coming out of the COVID public health emergency, dentistry as a whole has seen a substantial decrease, especially in dental hygienists. In West Virginia, economic challenges have also played a role as the state continues to experience high poverty rates, which has affected the income of oral health care professionals. According to the report, the access to care crisis is worse in underserved rural communities by patients receiving government-funded health insurance benefits like Medicaid and Medicare and by individuals individuals with intellectual or developmental disabilities, referred to as IDD. We were finding very similar findings to uh, those with intellectual and developmental disabilities having a tough time 
accessing care, as well as the Medicaid population, a, a high number of uh, individuals not accepting Medicaid. Boynes also noted that most IDD population patients were referred to WVU, a statistic that came as no surprise to Megan Baston, assistant professor and pediatric dentist at WVU. One of the things the report did for me personally was to kind of validate that we are a major referral source for a lot of the community providers. One way WVU, the state's only dentistry school, is addressing the workforce shortage is by adding a pediatric dental residency program so dentistry students and providers don't have to leave the state for additional training. My colleague, Dr. Dami Kim, has been working hard for the last several years on starting a pediatric residency program, and we're so excited to be able to bring that to WVU. Um, starting with our very first class this coming year. The report concludes with policy recommendations to address dental care access in West Virginia. The first is to encourage the use of technology, like mobile dentist practices, to reach rural populations. One of the things that the report talked about was maybe um, being innovative with the idea of these preventative visits. Maybe they don't have to happen with um, a physical location of like a dentist and a patient. The report also recommends interprofessional oral health care be delivered by medical care teams. This would include topical fluoride application and oral disease risk assessments conducted by doctors, not just dentists. One of the biggest things with preventative care is that it starts with patient education. So you have to teach the patient what is um, maybe a risk factor for them for getting disease. And to do that before they have disease, you have to see them for these preventative visits. The report's other policy recommendations include increasing training focused on treating individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities, expanding Medicaid dental coverage, and shifting reimbursement structures through value-based models. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. Proposing reforms throughout West Virginia's Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation will continue to surface in the state legislature's upcoming 2024 regular session. The two leaders of the embattled department recently noted some innovative progress that has been made on several fronts. Randy Yoey has more. Bad publicity, lawsuits, and allegations were some of the concerns that Division of Corrections and Rehabilitation Commissioner William Marshall and his boss, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Mark Sorsea, attempted to counter in a presentation to the Interim Legislative Oversight Committee on Regional Jail and Correctional Facility Authority. The subject, conditions in jails and correctional facilities. Marshall said jail guard vacancy rates were down while facility maintenance is ongoing. As of right now, um, we're down to uh, having about 113 doors, to be exact, that are need, uh, needed in repair. As you all know, that was a big issue for us uh, with uh, doors, door, uh, door frames, and door locks. Marshall said the department had to be good stewards of the $60 million now being spent on deferred maintenance and not just blanket spend that money. We're focusing on HVAC systems. We're focusing on... Uh, you know, uh, security fences, we're fo focusing on water chases, we're, we're focusing on a lot of things that really impact the day-to-day -day operations of our people. And thus, I think that'll keep us in a positive light, that we don't, we don't 
operate our facilities with broken sinks, broken, you know, broken cell doors, uh, broken sally port doors, whatever it might be. Marshall told the committee a big issue for him was that throughout the jails when COVID-19 hit, they had taken their gymnasiums and used them as storage for PPEs or mattresses or water. He said whatever it might have been. So I mandated that every jail cleans out their gyms. If we had to buy storage facilities for them, whatever, we would do that because that's such a great inmate management tool to have recreation for those inmates where they can go in there and they can blow off some steam and they can shoot some ball or they can play cornhole, get their minds off of things, and, and you end up having a better, a better inmate. And along those same lines, we, we added workout facilities for our employees. Marshall told the committee that 35 facilities now have new inmate phone services. He said 12,000 tablets have been issued to the inmates and residents, which in the last year and a half have facilitated more than 677,000 virtual visits for inmates. Visits that did not impact the economics of a family, whether they couldn't drive, whether they had a vehicle to even have, could, could make it there, or a juvenile's family where they may not be able to get there to visit that juvenile. That's also 677,000 people that didn't come through the doors uh, that, that our, our employees had to deal with so they could do the job that uh, you know, they're, they're required to do. Marshall talked about innovations in the often slighted rehabilitation part of the department. He explained that those tablets have 170 life skill programs for inmates. They can go in and, and, and learn how to balance a checkbook, understand how to, to, to manage their life, budget money, um, you know, wash clothes, do dishes, all that kind of stuff. A lot of life skills. If they, get, if they have some sort of vocation or certification while they're in, they can get, uh, they can get uh, opportunities through the Department of Labor that's, that's connected to our tablets. Secretary Sorsea told the committee his thoughts on innovative ways of marketing the correction officer position in terms of working with the majority of people in the system that are not dangerous, but rather young people who have problems. The correction officer is the young person in a jail who sees an 18-year-old kid who's gone to jail for the first night in his life, and he's over in the corner crying as a mother, as parents. And, you know, the correction officer could be the person to go over there and give that young person a little bit of comfort. In a lot of ways, a correction officer not only protects the public from people in jails, but they're also, in some ways, they can be um, a social worker. They can work with inmates. They can help inmates. These were some of the overlooked issues correction leaders say are changing within the department. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has proposed to list the West Virginia spring salamander on the endangered species list. Curtis Tate spoke with Will Harlan, a senior scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity, about the spring salamander. Your organization says there are fewer than 300 spring salamanders left, all of them in Greenbrier County. Yes, and, and that's, a, that's a generous estimate. They only exist in this single cave system with this single stream flowing through it. And despite the critical habitat protections that this new listing will provide, they only provide to the subsurface habitat of this species. Above it is all private land. And unfortunately, there is logging and pond construction that will threaten this stream and, and its habit and, and the underground habitat. So uh still uh the species will, will still face some threats, even with this protection. What can be done about it? Is a conservation easement possible? Yes. So there are certainly some steps that, that can be taken. 
and it's still early. This is just the proposed rule. Then the final rule has to be issued. Uh, and, and then there'll be more specifics that follow. Hopefully, the, the listing will encourage the private landowner to work with the Fish and Wildlife Service, the private landowners uh, surrounding this, this habitat, to adopt habitat conservation plans that will mitigate the impacts to this species. That's essentially what happens uh, is private landowners are asked to voluntarily make mitigation, take mitigation measures to reduce their impact to this species. Now, ultimately, Fish and Wildlife Service can be more strong-armed, but they prefer to uh, work with landowners to try to come up with voluntary measures to reduce their impact on, on endangered species. How does the spring salamander rank among endangered species? I would say this is one of the more endangered species in the country with such a small population and only a single uh, location remaining. It is incredibly vulnerable uh, to extinction and with no public lands surrounding it, it, it's essentially dependent on private landowners to do the right thing at this point, and that makes it uh, an incredibly precarious position. So I would say this is among the most endangered species in the country. Thankfully, Fish and Wildlife Service has stepped in and uh, provided not just endangered species status, but also critical habitat, which ensures that its essential habitat is permanently protected and every possible measure is taken to ensure that upstream impacts uh, are minimized. So it has now a fighting chance. Are other types of salamanders facing the same threats? Unfortunately, yes, uh, they're facing many of the same threats, but salamanders occupy a wide variety of niches, a, a wide variety of habitats. So some salamanders face different threats than others, but they all face some, some common themes in terms of threats, uh, I think. Industrial logging, industrial mining, uh, dams and uh, development, uh, dilution of water quality, water pollution, I think are, are kind of some of the common threats. But I'll mention some other salamanders in West Virginia that are, are also on the brink that we're also awaiting a listing decision for. It could come any day. We, we were told it was supposed to come this month, so it could be within the next week. Uh, the yellow-spotted woodland salamander, Plethodon polii, almost a completely different habitat than the, the cave salamander, but, but some similar overlap too. So this salamander only exists in the shale and sandstone outcrops that are also targeted by mountaintop removal mining. So this salamander uh, hides in the crevices of, of these outcrops. There's only 21 populations left. Most of them are only of a couple, a single or a couple individuals. Only uh, 65 of these salamanders have been seen in the last 20 years. So they're, they're barely hanging on and mountaintop removal mining is targeting the same habitat where they live. So uh, that, that's an existential threat to this species. And we anticipate them being uh, a finding coming from Fish and Wildlife Service that they are warranted for listing hopefully this month. But but uh, there's also the Cheat Mountain salamander, which only exists uh, in the Cheat Mountain region of West Virginia. 
And these salamanders don't have lungs and they hide in the on the forest floor, essentially. They need moist, cool, damp habitat. And if those forests are logged or drought or uh, um, other factors dry out their habitat, uh, they're toast. So they, they need these cool, moist habitats that Appalachia has historically uh, provided. All of our uh, our water, the, 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 the number of rivers and streams flowing through the region and the dense canopies historically have provided perfect habitat for salamanders. This is the salamander capital of the world. Appalachia is home to more species of salamander than anywhere else on the planet. But because of what we're doing to that habitat, uh, we're, we're jeopardizing a lot of these species. That was Will Harlan of the Center for Biological Diversity speaking with Curtis Tate about the West Virginia spring salamander. Blanco Glass has been a West Virginia institution for more than a century, making everything from stem and tableware to decorative glass figurines. They do this through traditional, hand-carved cherry wood molds. Emily Rice toured the Blanco factory in Milton, West Virginia, and has this story. In an era of speed, algorithms, and increasing automation, Blanco Glass holds true to its ethos. And made from sand to hand. James Arnett is the creative director of Blinko Glass. Blinko was unique being handmade, but especially unique still being handmade in 2023. Arnett describes Blinko's glassmaking process as an art one that includes the careful steps of workers in the shop's dance of molten glass, heat, and classic wooden molds. The glassblowing process is magical, alchemical. Um, it's intense to watch, right? There's seven moving bodies per shop, each one doing a different task that makes the glass uh, from sand to hand, as we call it. In a workshop with so many vital pairs of hands, one pair touches most everything in the shop. The shop's wood mold maker, Daniel Chapman. He's the man where the rubber hits the road, right? So it goes from paper, but it has to go into a mold. Right, um, that's a cornerstone of our glass blowing process. Like most workers at Blinko Glass, Daniel Chapman just needed a job when he was hired on at 18 years old. You know, nobody came to glass for glass, um, not here. We all came from other corners of the world or just because we needed a job. And we had the sort of thrill and the privilege of being able to come into this, into this environment and pick up a trade, a craft, um, and an art. Arnett said each mold is a benchmark by which to form the pieces. All pieces start as a blob of molten glass, which is attached to a long, hollow metal pole. The blower blows into the pole, creating a pocket of air in the blob of molten glass. As you can imagine, the glass blowing process is not a quiet one, so please forgive the audio as we make our way onto the hotshot floor. So the thing about the way that wood molds work is that when the blower inflates the glass within the cherry wood mold, which has been soaking and is wet, um, it creates a pocket of steam on the inside of the form of that mold that I say the glass rides, right? So as the blower spins that pipe with that hot unformed mass with the air behind it in that mold, it creates a pocket where the glass doesn't even really touch the edge of the wood. It 
creates a sort of a negative space around it that allows it to take its form. Uh, our wood molds would burn out really fast if we didn't have that sort of centrifugal technology behind our blowing. Daniel not only conceives of and creates the wooden molds, but keeps everyone's tools in working order. It's really neat to watch Daniel interact with our shop floor um, on, on a daily basis. He will come up to watch uh, to make sure that our new molds are being blown in well, accurately, responsibly. Um, he'll take a look at the, the health of our molds. Uh, he'll take a look at the health of our tools to make sure that they're still effective, they're still clean, they still work to the purpose that they were cut to. Um, and his cumulative wisdom about how glass is blown from the side of working wood um, really informs the way that we do everything on our hotshot floor. Blanco Glass uses its wooden molds differently from other studios, allowing them to soak for years so they can be used over and over again. So this is, it's a legacy. He's making not just sort of the form in which the glass goes, but he's making an artifact every single time um, that has a long life uh, in our hands. And it reminds us too that I mean, nothing here goes to waste. Everything that we make, that we use, um, has multiple purposes, has cross purposes, has been reclaimed, refashioned, reformed, or refurbished in some way. That was James Arnett speaking with Emily Rice at the Blanco Glass Factory in Milton. To hear the rest of that story and more, listen to Inside Appalachia, Sunday mornings at 7 and Sunday evenings at 6 on West Virginia Public Broadcasting. And that's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Chris Schultz.